Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the Enduring Word podcast. Enduring Word is a free online Bible commentary written by Pastor David Guzik and is used daily as a trusted resource for millions of believers around the world. We are honored to present the wisdom of the Bible to you, one chapter and verse at a time, to help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. Today, David will begin teaching through the book of Genesis. We'll start with an in-depth look at verse 1, where we find those well-known words, in the beginning. Let's begin. And when I say let's begin, I mean let's begin at the beginning. You see, we're not just beginning a study through the book of Genesis, which I'm very excited about. I've taught through the book of Genesis many times, but I've never really laid down any good audio or video recordings of it, and I hope to do that with this series. So it's not the beginning of my Bible study or the beginning of my teaching through the book of Genesis, but the book of Genesis is the beginning of the Bible. And the Bible really is the beginning of wisdom for humanity. So we really are starting at or in the beginning. And I hope you'll join us for many of these teachings through the book of Genesis as we make our way through the book. The first few chapters are going to be pretty slow going because there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to think about through these first few chapters of the book of Genesis. But we'll talk about that more as we make our way through it. I want to begin today with talking about some thoughts that we should start with as we study the Bible. There are many presuppositions. There's many foundational truths that we sort of come to our study of the Bible with. I think it's good to talk about that right here at Genesis 1-1, or actually before Genesis 1-1. So here are some thoughts to begin with as we study the Bible. We come to the Bible, number one, knowing that there is a God. In other words, uh, the purpose of this particular teaching through the book of Genesis, or this particular teaching that you're looking at right now, it's not to prove to you that there is a God. Now, there are many good and strong philosophical and logical reasons to believe in God. Yet the Bible doesn't make elaborate arguments for the existence of God. It does, however, tell us how we can know that God exists. First of all, we can know that God exists because of what we see in the created world. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, explains this very eloquently. Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. You see, there it just very plainly sees that it's the heavens that declare the glory of God. When you look up at the sky and see a beautiful sunrise, a beautiful sunset, when you see the marvelous galaxies on a dark night and a starry sky, you're seeing something of the glory of God. You're seeing something of his handiwork. Every day, every night, it reveals something about the language, about the knowledge of God. And this is universal. As the psalmist said, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now, there are people who reject this. There are people who deny this. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. 
the testimony of God's existence is plain in creation. Here's another verse which demonstrates this. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Friends, from a biblical perspective, humanity is without excuse when it comes to knowing whether or not there is a God. God has revealed himself in creation, and not only his existence, but at least some of his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his Godhead, and this makes humanity without excuse. Now, I know that there are many very intelligent people who deny the existence of God. Some of them love to bring forth their arguments and declare their voice. I get that. I understand it. But at the end of it, God has given humanity no excuse. He's revealed himself. Therefore, the Bible doesn't deal in great depth with arguments for the existence of God. Now, what we've just talked about is an example of what's called the teleological argument for the existence of God. It's the understanding that there must be a purposeful intelligence that created the world because the world we live in shows both purpose and intelligence. And in the view of many people, including myself, this argument from purpose and design remains unanswered by the atheist or the agnostic. No, friends, we come to the Bible believing, knowing that there is a God. Secondly, we come to the Bible believing that it is the place where God has spoken to man perfectly and comprehensively. In other words, the Bible gives us a perfect revelation of God in that it's all true, but it also is comprehensive. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know about God. Oh no, our curiosity is excited. There's a lot about God that we wish we knew more about, but comprehensively everything we need to know about God, at least on this side of eternity, is given to us in his word. You see, we believe, and I'm speaking sort of the royal we, we, I believe this, I hope you do as well, but we believe what is written in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, we can study God, but we can't put him under a microscope. We can't test God in a laboratory. We can only confidently know about God what he chooses to reveal to us. And what we are confident about is that what God has chosen to reveal to us in his word is profitable. It's useful for us. Yes, God has revealed himself in creation. We just spoke about that earlier. God has revealed himself also, Romans chapter 1 tells us, in the conscience of humanity. But his greatest, his most perfect, his most comprehensive revelation is given to us in and through his word. Friends, that's why I'm here teaching the Bible, studying the Bible. That's what I've dedicated my life to. Now, 
when we talk about the Bible, we believe that the Bible must be understood literally. That is, as straightforward and true according to its literary context. I have no problem with saying that we should understand the Bible literally, as long as we understand what we mean by literally. That the Bible uses metaphor, that the Bible uses simile, that the Bible uses poetry, that the Bible uses what some people call apocalyptic literature. When we understand all these things together, we say, yes, the Bible is straightforward. It's true according to its literary context. Friends, the Bible is much more than a book. It's a library of books, and it contains books that are written in different literary forms. Some portions of the Bible give a historical account. Others are poetic. Some are prophetic. And we must understand the Bible literally according to its literary context. Let me give you an example. David wrote something in Psalm 6, verse 6. Let's look at that together. David said in Psalm 6, verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. Now, friends, when David wrote that, he used a poetic literary form. We understand that David did not literally mean that he cried so much that he flooded his room and set his bed afloat. He said, I make my bed swim. No, we we understand exactly what David meant. He's drenching his bed with tears. It's as if it's soaked so much that, that it could swim away. We understand that he's using poetic imagery. We're understanding the Bible literally. Or we understand as well that it says here in Psalm 119, verse 128, Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things, I consider to be right. You see, with great confidence, the author of Psalm 119 proclaimed the inerrancy of God's word. God's word is right, not wrong. And as he says there in verse 128 of Psalm 119, it is right concerning all all things. So, friends, when the Bible gives us history, it is right and true. The events actually happened as described. When the Bible gives us poetry, it is right and true. The feelings and experiences were real for the writer, and they ring true to our human experience even to this day. When the Bible gives us prophecy, it is right and true. The events described will come to pass just as is written or have already come to pass as is fulfilled prophecy. When the Bible gives us instruction, it is right and true. It truly does tell us the will of God and the best way of life. And when the Bible tells us of God, it is right and true. It reveals to us what the nature and heart and mind of God are or at least as much as we can comprehend. Friends, if we do not approach the Bible this way, then we can only come to it with how we feel about the text. 
we make ourselves decide what is true or what is false about the biblical text. And that is to make ourselves greater than the Bible text itself. Though the teachings of Scripture have many applications, there's really only one true interpretation. Sometimes the interpretation is easy to discern, and sometimes it isn't. But God meant something with the text of the Bible that's revealed to mankind. I kind of like what Henry Morris wrote. He was a scholar and a scientist uh, who wrote a lot of things relevant to creation science. This is one thing he wrote in his commentary on the book of Genesis. Henry Morris said this, the only proper way to interpret Genesis 1 is not to interpret it at all. That is, we accept the fact that it was meant to say exactly what it says. Now, as we're dealing with Genesis chapter 1 over this and the next several teachings, we should point out that we believe that the Bible is not a book of science, yet wherever it touches science, it speaks the truth. So we can't say that the Bible is completely separated from science, not at all. It touches on many scientific truths, and wherever it does touch on scientific truth, the Bible speaks the truth. After all, if the Bible is false in regard to science or other things that we can prove, then we can't regard it as reliable in regard to spiritual matters that cannot be objectively proven. Okay, so that's two. We come to the Bible knowing there's a God. We come to the Bible believing that it's the place where God has spoken to man perfectly and comprehensively. Here's number three. We come to the Bible knowing that the copies we have in our hands are reliable duplicates of the exact writings which God perfectly inspired. You see, I don't mean to get too in-depth on this, but we believe that what God moved the human authors of Holy Scripture to write is perfect, that it was God-breathed completely without any error in any way. However, we don't have those original copies. As I'll discuss later, I believe very strongly that Moses wrote, or at least compiled and edited, the book of Genesis. But you see, we don't have the original copy of the book of Genesis as Moses originally compiled it or wrote it. That original copy that Moses wrote was perfectly inspired. But what we have are reliable copies, reliable duplicates, not perfect. There's some imperfections that have come into the text, but, but they're rare, they're few, they can be discerned. We have reliable duplicates of the exact writings which God perfectly inspired. You see, we can know this about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, by seeing the incredible care and reliability of the ancient Jewish scribes. This was demonstrated conclusively by the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries. What they did with the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries was they discovered Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament and other writings, but we're concerned mainly with the Old Testament. They discovered Hebrew manuscripts 
that predated anything existent by hundreds of years, and they found them to be virtually identical. In other words, this demonstrated that over a span of hundreds of years, these documents were faithfully copied. But we can also know this about the New Testament, or what we might call the Greek scriptures, by knowing that because of earlier manuscripts and a greater number of ancient manuscripts, the New Testament is by far the most reliable and exhaustively cross-checked ancient document that we possess. Really, no more than one one thousandth of the New Testament text is in question. So, are there a few questions about, well, did, did they really write this? Does this really belong? Yes, there are a few, but they are very few. No, we come to the Bible knowing that what we have are reliable duplicates or copies of the exact writings which God perfectly inspired. Now, here's number four, one of the things that we come to the Bible knowing. We come to the Bible knowing the unique importance of the book of Genesis. I mean, after all, that's what this series of teachings is. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And before we do that, I want you to be aware of just how powerfully unique and important the book of Genesis is. The Bible would be incomplete. It would perhaps be incomprehensible without the book of Genesis. Genesis sets the stage for the entire drama of redemption, which unfolds in the rest of the Bible. Almost every important doctrine and teaching of the Bible has its foundation in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis gives the foundation for the doctrines of sin, the fall, redemption, and justification. It gives the foundation for the doctrines of the promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for the personality and the personhood of God, and for the kingdom of God in general. The book of Genesis shows us the origin of the universe, of order and complexity, of the solar system, of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere, of life, man, and marriage. The, the book of Genesis tells us about the origin of good and evil. It tells us about the beginnings of language, of government, of culture, of nations, and religion. Friends, it is largely because people have abandoned the truth of the book of Genesis that society today is in such disarray. We can also add that Genesis is important to the New Testament, the Greek scriptures. There are at least, are you ready for this? 165 passages in the book of Genesis that are either directly quoted or clearly referred to in the New Testament. Many of these are quoted more than once. So there are at least 200 quotations or allusions to the book of Genesis in the New Testament. And in John chapter 5, Jesus himself spoke of the importance of believing what Moses wrote. This is what Jesus said, John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, we can't truthfully and consistently say that we believe in Jesus 
if we don't believe in the book of Genesis. That's why I understand there's going to be some things that we run across in the book of Genesis, maybe early in the book, maybe later in the book, that some of you, dear viewers or listeners, that that you have difficulty accepting. I would recommend to you the advice of Martin Luther, the great reformer. He wrote in the 16th century this, I beg and faithfully warn every pious Christian not to stumble at the simplicity of the language and stories that will often meet him there in Genesis. He should not doubt that, however simple they may seem, these are the very words, works, judgments, and deeds of the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God. Again, that's a quotation from Martin Luther, the great reformer. Now, knowing that the New Testament says that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, this is number five here, we come to the Bible knowing that the New Testament tells us that Moses wrote, that he was the author, or at least the compiler of the book of Genesis. Now, I know that Jewish tradition says that these are the books of Moses. The first book of Moses, second book of Moses, the first five books of Moses were authored by him. I know that that's what Jewish traditions tell us, but it's not just Jewish traditions. The New Testament tells us that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Let's take a look at this at Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where we read, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. That's speaking of Jesus teaching or speaking to his disciples there. Where did he begin? He began at Moses obviously beginning with the book of Genesis. Later on, in the same chapter, Jesus said this, Luke chapter 24, verse 47. These are the words of Jesus. Then he, that is Jesus, spoke to them. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. What did Jesus refer to the first five books as the Bible as? He referred to them as the books of Moses or the law of Moses, the writings of Moses. I think that there's something very special about the book of Genesis. I think that the book of Genesis gives us reason to believe that Moses actually compiled records that were preserved before him. Now, were they preserved in writing? Well, I don't have any doubt that by Moses' time, they were not merely oral traditions, but they were written. How far back they were written? I really don't know. There's a tendency for people to think that the older mankind was, the more primitive he was, but I think that that is a very biased way of thinking. I would not be surprised if Adam himself could read and write and left some kind of written record for his descendants to compile and to bring. Can I say that with any certainty? No, the Bible doesn't say, but I would not be surprised if that was the case. And what we have in the book of Genesis are some very interesting indicators of where I believe these records from Moses or that Moses compiled 
where these records begin and end. I think we see this in some interesting phrasing that's used throughout the book of Genesis. Let me explain to you what I mean. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, I don't believe that the heavens and the earth wrote a record, but God divinely gave this revelation. But if you notice now at Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Then Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Then if you were to go on to Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 11:10, this is the genealogy of Shem. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Genesis chapter 25, verse 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. And then there's similar statements regarding Esau and Jacob. You see, in these passages, phrases such as, this is the history, or this is the book, or this is the genealogy, may, I can't say it with certainty, but it may indicate the start or the end of the records that Moses collected and compiled. If I could read you another quote from Henry Morris, he says this, Thus, it is probable that the book of Genesis was written originally by actual eyewitnesses of the events reported therein. Probably the original narratives were recorded on tables of stone or clay in common practice in early times, and then handed down from father to son, finally coming into the possession of Moses. Moses perhaps selected the appropriate selections for compilation, inserted his own editorial additions and comments, and provided smooth transitions from one document to the next, with the final result being the book of Genesis as we have received it. So friends, I believe it. I hope you do too, because I think it's true. I believe it that Moses was indeed the author of the book of Genesis, compiling records of things that happened, obviously, before the time of Moses. So, we come to the Bible knowing there's a God. We come to the Bible believing that it is the place where God has spoken to man perfectly and comprehensively. Third, we come to the Bible knowing that the copies we have are reliable duplicates of the exact writings that God perfectly inspired. Number four, we come to the Bible knowing the unique importance of the book of Genesis. And then finally, we come to the book of the, come to the Bible knowing that the New Testament says that Moses was indeed the author of the book of Genesis. Now, we're going to get started with Genesis chapter one, verse one. I don't know if you're going to be pleased or disappointed, but we're going to cover one verse today. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And in it, we're going to begin our discussion of the first five days of creation. But I want to begin just with another note. I know this is a lot of introduction, but we're beginning the Bible. We're beginning the book of Genesis. I want to remind you of the philosophical importance of knowing God 
as creator. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre and many others have stated the essential problem of philosophy. Here it is, that there is something rather than nothing. And the question is, why? Why is there something rather than nothing? Everything else in our life flows from the answer we give to this question. If everything around us, including ourselves, is the result of random, meaningless occurrence apart from the work of a creating God, then that says something about who I am. It says something about where I and the whole universe are going. If that is the case, then the only dignity or honor that we give to people, it's pure sentimentality. Because we don't have any more significance than an amoeba. And there's no greater law in the universe than survival of the fittest. Friends, I don't believe that. I believe what the Bible says. That there is a God who has created and therefore gives meaning to all things. Somewhere around a hundred years ago, there was a great German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer. By habit, he usually dressed pretty sloppy. Some people said he dressed like a vagrant, like a homeless man. One day he sat on a park bench in Berlin and he was deep in thought, such as uh, philosophers might be. His appearance made a policeman quite suspicious of him. He thought he was just a vagrant, a homeless guy, you know, taking up space in the park. So the policeman asked the philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, who are you? Schopenhauer replied the way a philosopher would. He said, I would to God that I knew. That's the question humanity has been asking. Who am I? The only way we can ever really find out who we are is from God. And the best place to find that out begins, it doesn't end, but it begins in the book of Genesis. And there are many possible answers to the question of how everything came into being. Some people say that there was at one time absolutely nothing, and now there is something. Other people, and this would include the Bible, say that before there was anything created, before anything created, there was a person. There was a personal being. I heard a story, and look, I'll be truthful. It's probably just a preacher's story. Uh, Preacher's story aren't necessarily true, but they make a point. So there's a story about students in the class of a great physics professor. You know, someone like Albert Einstein, but of course Albert Einstein didn't actually teach undergraduates or not much. So you have this great physics professor and the students in his classroom tell the teacher, the professor, that they had decided that there is no God. And the professor said, well, that's a very interesting conclusion you've come to, that there is no God. The professor asked them, how much of all the knowledge in the world do you have among yourselves collectively as a classroom? So I don't know how many students there were in the class. Let's say 50. The students discussed it for a while and they decided that amongst themselves, among that theoretically 50 students, 
they decided that they had 5% of all human knowledge among themselves. Well, the professor responded, he says, I, I think your estimate's a little generous. <laughs> I don't think you actually have 5% of all human knowledge amongst yourselves. But then he asked them, is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't know? Now, that's a story, but I think it communicates a principle. For someone to authoritatively say there is no God would pretty much mean that they claim to know all things. It's almost a claim to being God. Therefore, we're going to approach Genesis, and in just a moment here, Genesis 1.1, believing what the Bible presents, that there is a God in heaven who has created all things. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is a simple, factual statement regarding God's work as creator. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Friends, that's a pretty dramatic statement. That summary statement is going to be detailed in the following verses. We're going to walk through, eventually, the days of creation. But the Bible simply and straightforwardly declares that the world did not create itself that the world did not come about by chance. It was created by God, who by definition always has been and is eternal. You see, God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. And he's the focus of the whole biblical story, being referred to again and again. And friends, I'm just simply here to tell you that if you can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, if you can believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if you can believe that, you will have no problem believing the rest of the Bible. The God who's big enough to have created the heavens and the earth is big enough to do all the rest that the Bible says that he did and that he does. Now, when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the word God in that sentence is the ancient Hebrew word Elohim. Grammatically, it is a plural word used as if it were a singular word. In other words, the verbs and the pronouns used with Elohim here should be in the plural, but when Elohim refers to the Lord God, the verbs and the pronouns are in the singular. I found a very interesting quote from a commentary, Adam Clark. He was an English commentator of the late 17th and early 18th century. He quoted a rabbi named Rabbi Simeon ben Yochai, commenting on this word Elohim. And so here I'm going to quote Clark, quoting Rabbi Simeon ben Yochai. Here it goes. Come and see the mystery of the word Elohim. There are three degrees, and each degree by itself alone, yet notwithstanding, they are all one, and joined together in one, and are not divided from each other. Now, friends, I, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a rudimentary understanding of the Trinity 
being described by this Jewish rabbi. And in light of what the rabbi wrote, this is what Adam Clark added. He added this thought. He must be strangely prejudiced indeed who cannot see that the doctrine of a trinity and of a trinity in unity is expressed in the above words. I would agree with that. In the beginning, Elohim, the triune God, created the heavens and the earth. And friends, the simple fact of God's creation is even more amazing when we consider the greatness of God's universe. Friends, I'm not an astronomer. All I know is what I read, and I hope to reproduce accurately what I read. If some mistakes creep in here, please forgive me. But but in large measure, I just think this is true, according to the astronomers. A typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. Our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, contains 200 billion stars. Our galaxy is shaped like a giant spiral rotating in space with arms reaching out like a pinwheel. And our sun is one star on one arm of the pinwheel. It would take 250 million years for that pinwheel to make one full rotation. But friends, that's only our galaxy. There are many other galaxies with many other shapes, including spirals, spherical clusters, and flat pancakes. The average distance between one galaxy and another is about 200 million trillion miles. Our closest galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, and it's about 12 million trillion miles away. It's said, I'll be honest, I've just read that for every patch of sky the size of the moon, so just think of how big the moon is up in the night sky, if you could look very deep into space, you would see about a million galaxies. Now, the scope of this, the span of this, is beyond comprehension. Friends, the Bible tells us that God did this all by himself. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 13 says this, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that God is bigger and greater than all of his creation. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, that means God's hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? That's how big God is. He's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He's measured heaven with a span. That's a span, the the distance you can make between your thumb and forefinger. Now, I don't think it's telling us that literally God is a material being that big. 
It's just telling us of the grandeur and the greatness of the God we serve. Now, let's think of it again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God created the heavens and the earth, then we must forever put away the idea that anything happens by chance. You see, chance merely describes the statistical probability of something happening. Chance itself can neither do nor perform anything. Now look, there's some really smart people who kind of fall into this wrong thinking. I read of a chemist, a biochemist named Jacques Menard, and he wrote this. I'm sure Jacques Menard was a very intelligent man. But this is what he wrote. Chance alone is at the source of every innovation of all creation in the biosphere. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind, at the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. But friends, assigning such power to chance, may I say it? It just doesn't make sense. Chance has no power. For example, if you were to flip a coin, when the coin is flipped, the chance that it lands heads or tails is 50%. However, chance does not make it land heads or tails. Whether or not it lands heads or tails is due to the strength with which the coin is flipped, the strength of the air currents and the air pressure as it flies through the air. It depends on where the coin is caught and if it's flipped over once it is caught. Chance doesn't do anything but describe a probability. Many years ago, there was a scientist. He used to be famous. He's long gone, and I don't even know if his name is known anymore. But there was a scientist named Carl Sagan. He petitioned the United States government for a grant to fund the search for intelligent life in outer space. Carl Sagan hoped to find evidence of life by using a super-sensitive instrument to pick up radio signals from distant space. And when he would receive those radio signals, he would look for order and pattern. That would demonstrate that the signals were transmitted by intelligent life. In the same way, the order and pattern of the entire universe demonstrates that it was fashioned by intelligent life, not by chance. You could say that scientists like Carl Sagan detect chance in radio signals all the time. They call it static. It has no pattern. It's just noise. It tells them nothing. Therefore, when someone says that the universe, or anything else for that matter, came about just by chance, you might say that despite their expertise or skill in other areas in which they may be brilliant, when it comes to that particular point, I don't think they make sense. You could even say they're ignorant. Maybe they're superstitious. Maybe, and this is usually the matter, they're simply repeating a tired theory that's been said and disproved before, yet it's unthinkingly accepted by many people. Friends, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And inherent in the idea of God is that he is an intelligent designer. Only an intelligent designer could create what is called sometimes a just right universe. Chance couldn't do it. And you could say our universe is a just right universe in many ways. According to the astrophysicist, that's, I believe, his realm of science, Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, in his book, The Fingerprint of God, uh, makes the following claims. He says that the universe has a just right gravitational force. If it were larger, then the stars would be too hot and they'd burn up too quickly and too unevenly to support life. If the force of gravity were smaller in the universe, the stars would remain so cool that nuclear fusion would never ignite. There'd never be any heat or light from the stars. Secondly, the universe has a just right speed of light. If it were larger, faster, then the stars would send out too much light. But if it were slower, then the stars would not send out enough light. Third, the universe has a just right average distance between the stars. If that distance were larger, then the heavy element density would be too thin for rocky planets to form, and there would only be gaseous planets. But if that distance were smaller, then planetary orbits would become destabilized because of the gravitational pull from other stars. Now look, I, before I make the fourth point here, I think you can tell that these are things that I just learned from books. I don't know about these things directly. It's not my area of research, but I think it's fascinating to see what scientists tell us. Scientists tell us, number four, that the universe has a just right polarity of the water molecule. If that polarity were greater, then the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too great for life to exist. But if that polarity were smaller, then the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too small for life's existence. Liquid water would be too inferior of a solvent for life chemistry to proceed. Ice wouldn't float. It would lead to a runaway freeze-up. You see, when you take just those four, and there are many, many more aspects. I'm just listing four of them for you. If you take those things co to, together, collectively, we could conclude that there's no chance that such a universe could create itself apart from an intelligent designer. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This tells us that God used no pre-existing material to create the earth. The ancient Hebrew word bara, here translated created, it's very specific. It means to create out of nothing, showing that God created the world out of nothing, the universe out of nothing, not out of himself, not out of some pre-existing material. You see, God is separate from his creation. Unlike many Eastern and pantheistic perceptions of God, the Bible teaches that the universe could perish, but God would still remain. Now, Mankind cannot create in the sense that the term is used in Genesis 1.1. We cannot create out of nothing. We can only 
fashion or form things out of existing material. The closest we come to creating is in reproducing ourselves sexually. This is perhaps one reason why Satan wants to pervert and destroy God's plan and God's standard for sexuality, because it's deeply connected to our being made in the image of God. I've got a collection of books called The Legends of the Jews. Uh, It's back there on the shelves behind me somewhere. And in that collection, compiled by a Jewish author named Louis Ginsburg, he relays a fascinating legend. It's not true. It's just a legend, but it's interesting. On how the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet all wanted to begin the Bible. (laughs) But in the end, the letter Bet, that's the letter B, the letter Bet was allowed to begin the Bible. This is because the letter Bet came to the Lord saying this, O Lord of the world, May it be thy will to create thy world through me, seeing that all the dwellers of the world give praise daily unto thee through me. As it is said, blessed be the Lord, beginning with the letter bet, forever, amen and amen. For this reason, again, according to a legend, the Hebrew book of Genesis begins, Bereshith, blessed, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. My friends, that's going to be it for our look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Next time we get together, we're actually going to begin again at verse 1, but we're going to make it all the way to verse 2 next time. But I want to conclude, as I will do many of these times, taking a look at the book of Genesis. I always like to conclude thinking about how does the text that we have just examined, in this case, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, how does it point to Jesus Christ? You see, the Bible's about a lot of things, but ultimately it's about Jesus. It points to Jesus. So how does Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, point to Jesus? Well, I'll give you one way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible also tells us that Jesus Christ is the creator. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says this, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things consist. Friends, it's hard to get any more comprehensive than that statement from Colossians chapter 1. Everything that's in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, all things, in him all things consist. But I'll even give you another verse here. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, that is Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. In other words, Jesus created everything. So we look at this first point. How does Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 point to Jesus? Well, it tells us, it reminds us that Jesus is the creator. Now by this, we don't mean that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are not the creator. No, we would say that the Godhead in its triune glory created all that there is. But it isn't wrong to say 
Jesus Christ is the creator of all. And friends, that's a staggering statement. A man who walked this earth was also the God who created all things. Staggering. Okay, that's number one. Now, number two, not only does Genesis 1-1 point to Jesus by showing us that Jesus is the creator, but Jesus is also the word of God. And what do I mean by that? Well, simply said, we've been talking a lot today about the importance of the Bible, of the word of God. And Jesus is the word. Look at this from John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then now at John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, when we look at the central place that the word has in God's revelation, we realize that Jesus Christ is God the Word. Now, friends, we don't make an idol out of the Bible, God forbid, but we highly prize it as God's self-revelation. The Bible, God's living Word, is His love letter, His wisdom letter, His warning letter to us, And Jesus Christ is so closely identified with God's revelation in and through both the Hebrew and Greek scriptures that he himself can fairly be called the Word of God. God the Word. We rest in that. We rejoice in that. All right, I'm going to just conclude with a very brief prayer, and I hope you can join us next time. Father in heaven, thank you for your Word. Thank you that you are a creator and that we have obligations to you because you are the God who's created all things, including us. We love you, we thank you, and we give you praise in the name of the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. For more information about Enduring Word and Pastor David Guzik, please visit EnduringWord.com or download our free Enduring Word 